As we begin our time in God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for the blessings that we've already enjoyed as we've worshipped together, we've sung songs and prayed for one another. Lord, as we open your Word to understand it, to drink deeply from the well of life, uh, from the water of life, and to eat of the bread of life, Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand its truth and that we might walk out of this place ready to serve you. pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be in the last Beatitude of our little mini-series on the Beatitudes. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. And I've had many of y'all every Sunday have told me how much of a blessing it's been to, to study the Beatitudes. And I have answered back every time that it's been a blessing for me to study it because it has really done a lot to to build my spiritual life, to refurbish and refresh my soul. And so I've enjoyed thoroughly the, the study in the Beatitudes. And, and some of y'all have said that you've gotten more out of it than you ever imagined that you could. And I would say, amen, I have too. I've, I've gotten a great deal out of it myself. And, and it's given me a great deal of hope and, and uh, faith in the blessings of the kingdom of God. And so uh, we come to the last one. Uh, today, and this is another one of those beatitudes, like so many of them, that seem contradictory. They're a paradox. This beatitude is a, a paradox of sort. In fact, you could say that this beatitude is a bookend or, or a, 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 a circling back to the start of the beatitudes. Remember how the start of the beatitudes. Uh, at the beginning of the Beatitudes, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So you start with the poor in, the spirit, in spirit, and then today we're going to end with the persecuted, those who face judgment, uh, the judgment of men because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so let's read together Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So from this beatitude, I want you to see two points today. I want you to see the persistence of persecution and the paradox of suffering. The persistence of persecution and the paradox of suffering. So first, we're going to consider the persistence of persecution. And Jesus begins this beatitude by saying that those who face reviling and persecution and evil because of their profession of faith in him, will be blessed. Now this raises an obvious question as we read this statement, and that is, what is persecution? Some scholars limit persecution just to the acts of an organized group, either a religious group that is opposing Christians or the government itself, while others tend to expand persecution to mean basically any slight or conflict that a Christian might endure, whether it's by the forces of nature or men themselves. So in explaining what persecution is, it might help to first explain what persecution is not. 
And there are three things that I want to explain as to what persecution is not. First of all, persecution is not just any suffering. Okay, a cancer diagnosis is not persecution. Um, a, a difficult time at work, you know, because uh, you're, the company's going through a hard time and you get laid off, that is not persecution. Now, if that was motivated because you were a Christian, then sure, that would be persecution. But if just life circumstances and general suffering is not persecution. Second, persecution is not retaliation. Now, there are times when Christians have gained power, both in history and even in in, uh, our current times, where Christians have gained power and they have used that power to harm people, either by restricting the freedoms of other groups or by persecuting other religions. And historically, this always leads to rebellion and conflict uh, by those who are oppressed. And then Christians, in a turn of fate, experience retaliation and revenge from those groups that were once oppressed by Christians themselves. So is that retaliation what Jesus is talking about here? No, certainly not. It's not an issue of revenge or retaliation for acts that Christians have carried out on other groups. I think it's important as we study this idea of persecution that we understand that there is a general assumption throughout the New Testament, both by Jesus and his apostles, that Christians will not or and should not seek to use political and government authority for the upbuilding of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is, of God is not built on power and politics. The kingdom of God is built on prayer and the proclamation of the gospel. That is how the kingdom of God is built. And so, as we've studied in the previous Beatitude, we are to be a people that pursues peace. We are to live peaceably with our fellow man. As Jesus tells Peter in Matthew chapter 26, verse 52, all who live by the sword will what? Die by the sword. Jesus would also tell Pilate in John chapter 18, verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. Even in this beatitude, there is an assumption that life in the kingdom of God in this present age will be characterized by persecution. One of the most haunting passages is a passage out of 2 Timothy. It's a haunting passage to me, and it should haunt any Christian, and we'll talk more about this as we go through. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy that all who would live a godly life will face persecution. The Christian life, In this fallen and corrupt world, as far as Paul saw it, and as far as Jesus saw it, and as far as his apostles saw it, was a life that was defined by conflict between the forces of evil in this world and the forces of good in the Christian and in the church and in the kingdom of God that was breaking into this world. That is how our present age should be, according to Scripture, should be defined. Third, Uh, Persecution is not just simply living in a fallen world. 
Just because you're exposed to sin out in the world, just because you can't watch a movie without curse words or because you can't uh, because you have to be judicious about what your kids are exposed to doesn't mean that you are persecuted. Okay, Uh, in first Corinthians, chapter five, verse nine, Paul says, I'm not writing this letter to tell you that you should remove yourself from the world or that you would rem- should remove yourself from ungodly people. Because if you were to do that, it would mean that you would he- have to be taken out of the world. As the famous saying goes, uh, Christians are in the world, but what? Not of the world, right? We are to be salt and light in the world that is corrupted by sin. So now let's consider what persecution is. In this beatitude, Jesus gives us three different verbs that, give, uh, that get at the acts of persecution. First, he says, uh, blessed are you when people revile you, right? Uh, second, he uses the word persecute, which can also mean pursue or to chase down. Okay, so persecute literally means to pursue or chase down. And third, he says to speak evil of. In Luke's version of this same beatitude, in Luke chapter uh, 6, verse 22, he uses a similar set of verbs. He actually uses four verbs. He says, those who hate, exclude, revile, or spurn you. Okay, so I think these verbs get at three elements of persecution. One, persecution can be a hatred of the things of God that is directed at believers. You see, sin at its core, now you might not think that sin is this when you commit sin, but sin at its core is a rebellion against a holy God. To rebel against God is to hate the things of God. So people who are living in sin hate the things of God. And so if they hate the things of God, guess what else they're going to hate? Those who are of God, right? So if a Christian is living as he should, and hear me when I say that, if a Christian is living as he should, then sinners will hate him for it. Sinners will hate him for it. Think of John the Baptist, who was despised by Herodotus because he, uh, he preached against her adultery with Herod. That hatred of John the Baptist motivated her to have him executed, to devise a a very convoluted plan to have him executed so that she could get get rid of this man who was preaching against her sin. Second, persecution can come in the form of exclusion. This exclusion can come by the loss of rights or by the segregation of Christians to second-class citizens. In some Muslim-majority countries, Christians are relegated to a lower-paying job or they are relegated to certain areas, certain slums of the city. In our country, we're beginning to see the diminishing of our freedom of religion. There are regular attempts by state governments and the federal government to force Christians to violate their consciences with respect to abortion, homosexuality, family planning, uh, speaking, uh, even preaching the gospel in public places. Um, this, these are all things that we would have assumed would not happen in a Western culture that believed in a Bill of Rights. But yet we see this in Canada, we see it in Europe, and we even see it in parts of the U.S., 
Finally, persecution can take the form of slander. Jesus says that persecutors may utter all sorts of evil against you. The early Christians were most often persecuted in this way. Back in the first and second centuries, rumors swirled that Christians ate human flesh because of our language surrounding the Lord's Supper. Pagans spread lies that Christians practiced incest because of our habit of calling one another what? Brother and sister, right? We do that very faithfully in the Baptist church. Well, the pagans used that against us back in the early centuries. This slander comes today for us as Christians, most notably, at least I've noticed it most, in the media, whether it's social media or the mainstream media, which misrepresent or underrepresent the Christian position on a whole host of issues. Now that we understand what persecution is, let's consider the second point, which is the paradox of suffering. So let's just admit it right off the bat on this second point, that this beatitude is strange. If you were to just take this beatitude at face value, this is a strange statement that Jesus makes. Because think about what he says, what Jesus says. He says that we are blessed when we are persecuted. Now, I thankfully have not faced a whole lot of persecution, but I, don't, I can't imagine those who have faced persecution feeling like they were blessed. But yet, Jesus says that we are blessed when we are persecuted. And not only that, but he also says that we should rejoice and be glad. And that word glad there literally means to jump for joy. We should rejoice and be glad when we are persecuted because our reward is great in heaven. Now, James echoes this idea in James chapter 1, verse 2, and he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So how is it possible that persecution can be a good thing for the Christian? I want to suggest three reasons that persecutions should give us joy. The first reason is found in the Beatitude itself. Persecution proves our connection with Christ. Jesus says that we experience persecution, notice he says, on his account. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and utter all sorts of evil falsely against you on my account. So when we are persecuted, we are being identified with Jesus himself. In John chapter 15, verse 20, he tells his disciples, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Persecution proves what Jesus says, and it proves that we are living like Jesus. So we should rejoice that people see that in us, and it attracts their hatred, exclusion, and slander. We should praise God that we are living faithfully enough to the image of Christ in us that when people look at us, they hate us. That's weird, isn't it? But it's true. And I, I had, in, in junior high, I had a very real experience of this because in junior high, I became very convicted of my witness for Christ. And as a result, I, was, I became very outspoken about my faith in the seventh and eighth grade. And there were, were several of my classmates that reacted 
harshly against that. They made fun of me and called me names and all of that. And one particular student called me Billy Graham Jr. And when she did, I did exactly like y'all did. And I laughed and I said, thank you. Because what, a, what greater compliment could an unbeliever give to a Christian than to call him or her Billy Graham Jr.? I mean, the only better thing to be was a little Jesus, which is what Christian means. <laughs> That's the only thing better that you could be called. And the second reason we can rejoice in persecution is found in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James says that persecution is a testing of faith. When our faith is tested, he says that it produces steadfastness. As we grow in steadfastness, it makes us complete and holy. So for the unbeliever, hardship drives them to bitterness, to resentment, and to hatred for God. But for the believer, that same hardship leads to a deeper dependence on God and a closer walk with Him. So when we face testing, when we face persecution, it produces in the believer a stronger faith, a more steadfast faith. So uh, Polycarp was a bishop in Smyrna at the end of the first century A.D., after Christ. And there was a, a, a spate of persecution that broke out in that area. And Polycarp, as a result of his office as bishop, was a top prize for the Roman authorities in his day. And when they finally captured Polycarp, the Roman governor of the area called everyone into the local Colosseum, gathered a huge crowd, and because he wanted everyone to see this man of God fall. They tied Polycarp to a post in the center of the Colosseum and they built a pyre around him. And the governor threatened him over and over again to recant his faith and to turn from Christ or he would burn him alive. And he called on Polycarp to just revile Christ. And to that call, Polycarp answered, For eighty and six years... I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. And how can I now blaspheme my king who saved me? Polycarp's faith was proven on that power, and he rejoiced in it. And because of Polycarp's witness, a great fire of evangelism went out from Smyrna and the gospel spread so that a hundred years later, another church father named Tertullian would write a famous saying, which is that the blood of the martyrs is seed for the church, that God prospers the church through martyrdom and persecution. And it caused his faith and it caused the faith of others to be more steadfast at the witness of people like Polycarp. Finally, we can rejoice in persecution because it proves the genuineness of our faith. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Persecution will always prove the genuineness of our faith. True saving faith will endure. Now, many have bemoaned the decline of church attendance that we have experienced over the last few decades. And I've even bemoaned that myself. But while I certainly wish for better days for the Christian church in America, I can't help but see the Lord's work in this decline. I see this decline not as a falling away, but as a winnowing. Over the last 40 years, it has become more and more difficult to be a Christian in our society. It's no longer necessary to be a Christian to hold political office or to get a good job in a small town or to be connected in society. So people who identified as Christians for all those reasons no longer have to and no longer do so. Now, is that a bad thing? I honestly think not. It has proven who the real believers are. Along with that, many bemoan the rise of those who have no religious affiliation in the younger generations. There has been a tendency to classify millennials and Gen Z as godless because so few of them attend church or seem committed to Christ. But that's not what I find at all. On the contrary, what I have found is that those of the millennial and Gen Z generations who claim to be a Christian are far more committed to their faith than their boomer or Gen X parents. Are there fewer of them? Sure. But boy, are they on fire when they are committed. So let me end today with a call to our church. Brothers and sisters, we live in a society that has been rapidly secularizing. In fact, I would say that we are in the late stages of that secularization. We will face, as a result of that, we will face increased persecution as a result of it. And we need to be ready. We will lose rights. We will face threats. And we will be spoken ill of. Will we see this as a blessing or as a curse? Will we see this as an opportunity to refine our faith and to let our light shine and to be examples of Christ and witnesses for Christ in a lost world that hates God and hates righteousness and hates us as a result? Or will we seek power as a last-ditch effort to protect ourselves from the very thing that God says we should not uh, that we should rejoice over. You see, I think we have a terrible track record of this, quite honestly, as Christians in America. Uh, it disappointed me the way that many pastors and religious leaders acted during the 2016 election. Now, this has nothing to do with who the president and the candidates were has nothing to do with any of that, but it has to do with the fact that I watched men like Robert Jeffries of First Baptist of, uh, of Dallas fall all over themselves just to have an immediate access to power, just to be close in proximity to the President of the United States. And they would excuse behavior they would excuse language. They would excuse demeaning, demeaning uh, 
words from the mouth of the president because they wanted to maintain access to the levers of power. Instead of being a prophetic voice for the truth of the gospel and the truth of righteousness and dealing with the consequences and the hate and the exclusion as a result of it, we bowed to the power at the time because we wanted to protect ourselves from a world that was secularizing around us. Instead of being a true light in a fallen world, instead of living in and resisting that hatred and living as a faithful witness in this world, we went after that power with everything we had. And you know what's been tarnished as a result of it? Our witness. You know what the younger generations see in the church? A bunch of hypocrites. Because we preached uh, 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 control over your tongue and control over your marriage and control over your lust and avoidance of adultery and all of that thing. And then when someone comes along that gives us power, we say, don't worry about all that. Just, just go for that guy. Now, we are called to be faithful in the midst of whatever circumstances we are in. We are called to be faithful to preach the word to whomever stands in front of us. And regardless of whether, whether that gains us power and recognition and authority or not. And so I hope that we as Christians will go from this place and we will live in that faithfulness regardless of what persecution may come. Because it will come and it will come from the right or it will come from the left. It doesn't matter if we are preaching faithfully what God would have us to preach. It will come regardless of where it comes from. And so may we be faithful as we leave this place to do what God has called us to do and to live in rejoicing even as we face persecution in this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the blessings that we have in the kingdom. That even as we face persecution, even as we face suffering, that we would be uh, found faithful and that we would find rejoicing in it. That we would jump for joy because of what it proves in us. That it proves that we are like Christ. That we, it proves that we are identified with him. And it proves the steadfastness of our faith and the genuineness of our faith. Father, may we leave this place and serve you as you have called us to. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.